Welcome to the latest episode of Red Devil Talk, the podcast. Today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by best-selling author, producer, ghostwriter and big United fan, Wayne Barton. Before we get started, Wayne, I want to say welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your time. Oh, no worries, Jimmy. How are you doing? You all right? You've had a good morning, Wayne. Waking up to see you got a mention in Dr. John Cooper Clark's autobiography. You must be buzzing. Yeah, it was a, a weird one. Um, yeah, it's just completely weird, to be fair. I got that message. Obviously, I knew that he'd, he'd done a book, um, but you don't expect to see yourself uh, mentioned in it. I actually saw the book the other day because I went into Waterstones to see if my, um, my Cantonar book was in, and it was, thank God. Um, that's been um, influenced by the pandemic, you know, because um, the store's shut for such a long time. Um, so I went in there and um, I saw the book and my wife was like, oh, you should get that. And we were joking about, you know, it's my mate. Because obviously, for people who are listening to this and they don't know, John narrated the, the documentary Too Good To Go Down. He was the, the host for that. And um, I met him while, whilst down there. And yeah, so the, the, the director, Tom, sent me a, a WhatsApp this morning. He said, oh, look who's in John's book. And I was like, what on earth is that? Um, just mental, just mental, honestly. Um, but buzzing. I'm going to have to get a copy of it now. <laughs> I didn't have it first. That must bring a great sense of pride when. I don't know if it, yeah, yeah, it does. It does, obviously, because it's John Cooper Clark and you in his book. Do you know what I mean? And um, it, it's just difficult to compute, really. It, it's not something that you expect. It's, you know, even writing as I do and knowing different people, you just don't expect those kind of things. And I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's pride, but yeah, to say something is like, it's excellent. He said it's excellent. You know, obviously he's going to say that because he's narrating it, but <laughs> I still think he means it, you know? Um, yeah, it, it was easy. It's just, like I say, it's mental. Um, I'll, I'll feel more proud later once it's sunk in. I have here in my hand a copy of your latest book, Beckham, The Making of a Megastar. And I have to say, you've done an excellent job. The research in it is fantastic. The detail is really good. I really think you've done a great job. I want to know, are you happy with the outcome of this book? Yeah, I am. I think, first of all, I think the produ- uh, the publishers did an amazing job with it. I think it's immaculately presented and I don't, you've just picked it up there with the dust cover on, but without the dust cover, the book itself is just absolutely beautiful. Um, so they did a great job with that. Um, in terms of my, my part with it and what I wanted to do, I wanted to write a book about David Beckham, the footballer. Um, you know, take your praise about it being well-researched, but I lived through that, so I don't really consider it research because, you know, I remember there are some things that I had to jog my memory on, but um, most of it I do remember, and the things that are probably the things that you might consider research would be little things that I remember at the time that I wanted to shine a greater light on. So that's why I was writing the book, basically, to go back and go over those kind of stories. Um, You know, like the things about um, him training, and staying behind after training and, and following Canton R and everything like that. Those kind of things I wanted to shine a bigger light on. Um, I, I'm quite happy with the, obviously a book's only as good as the, the feedback that people are giving it. And it's only recently out, so but the, the feedback so far has been 
pretty generous um, people. I mean, you, you're always going to get why. Um, is there another book about David Beckham? But I felt the reason why there needed to be one was because um, his contribution as a footballer has not really been um, analysed in, in the way that I wanted to do it. So, um, yeah, I'm happy with the way that he came across. Um, obviously, as well, the fact that it's a, a full career. You know, you've done from minute one to, to the last bit, and it's the first the first book that's really done that since he retired, So, which is crazy considering it's seven years already. Where does this book rank for you in terms of your work? Do you class this as one of your best pieces? I'm doing that asking between my kids. Um, no, I don't have kids, but that's what I imagine it feels like. I'm not going to do that, but um, I am really happy with it. And I will say that um, I've got some good friends who read my books and they'll always give me honest feedback. And they're, it's like everything, if you work it, I mean, you, Jimmy, yourself, I don't want to sort of make you embarrassed here, but you will know from the work that you do and the way that you interview people and how much, I'm not going to say better because I don't need to sound like I'm insulting what you did at the start, but the way that you've changed and evolved and the way that you're more conversational and you can, everything's much more fluid and much more um, comfortable than what it was before. Um, you just you just get used to it better. And, and I feel like I, I'm... Obviously, the connections that you make over time and the, the advice that you get and the way that people um, talk to you and you learn to take criticism positively in a different way. Um, I had some really good um, advice from Rob Smythe, who, you know, great writer in The Guardian. I mean, he said he was very nice with the things he was saying, but he was saying one of the books I'd sent him, what he was proofreading for me, um, was Case Rossera. And he actually said, really like a lot of this but I want to see more of you in it and I thought well that's actually a massive compliment you know you wanted to see my opinion and stuff and if there was something that I'd been hesitant about before that was the fact that I wasn't doing that I wanted to sort of present the story in an unbiased way I didn't want to put myself in it but he was sort of saying no that's what we want now so I've tried to take that more into my work. Um, I don't know if that sort of answers what you're trying to <laughs> ask me, but with the Beckham book, I, I thought, no, do you know what? I'm going to put a little bit of my own opinion of how good he was as a footballer, especially, I mean, having read it, you will have known one of the big things I wanted to talk about was how he um, influenced um, England in that golden generation and the fact that, you know, people talk about Gerard and Lampard and Skulls, don't they? And I think, well, that's a massive disservice to, to Beckham's contribution. It's probably the best. That has, and obviously that's the argument that I've tried to make in the book. Um, but those kind of things, perhaps I wouldn't have felt confident enough to have made that argument five years ago because I, all I wanted to do is maybe present what actually happened and sort of say, well, you can make up your own mind, which I don't think is a necessarily a bad thing to do. But I, I think that because I'm more confident in doing it, um, that's the way that I've evolved with it. Um, whether it's better or not, it's, it's a different style, isn't it, really? And everything, like I said earlier, is, is how someone receives it, um, is, is how they receive it, really. You touched on something there. You said that David Beckham, it was a disservice. I was speaking to Luke Chadwick last week, and I suggested that Beckham doesn't probably get the credit he deserves for his contributions. I think of 99... I think of the FA Cup semi at Villa Park. Obviously, Giggs gets most applauded, and rightly so, but Beckham scored a wonderful goal in that game. I think of the last day of the season in 99, Beckham's equaliser. Yeah. There aren't many other players who are capable of producing such quality in key moments. He was a big game player and he produced big moments. 
I want to know, is that a thought you share? Do you think Beckham hasn't got the credit he deserved for his contribution to the club? Yeah, I, I do. Um, it's a very difficult one because... Okay, it's so difficult. You're talking about a period in 99 and you, I'm sure we could talk about the split vote. You know, they got Ginella, the, the Player of the Year award and everything like that. Um, and Beckham is, in a way, is a victim of that through that midfield because you've got Ryan Giggs who had this talent and Scholes who was probably better in the last 10, year, 10 years of his career than the first 10 and Roy Keane was just a, a freak of nature but Beckham was himself a freak of nature he was working he, you know he's a product of hard work he was in the book I've said he's the um, epitome of what um, a United young player should be um, what United want from a young player also said you know if um if he'd played for any other club, Fergie would have moved Evan in a, to sign him, you know, because he was that kind of profile um, and he wouldn't have minded the circus then, I'm sure. But, yeah, I, I still think that within that line, because of the players that he played with, his contribution does get overlooked. So, like you, you mentioned there, 99 and stuff like that. But, I mean, obviously both the goals came from his corners in the final. Um, you mentioned the, the semi-final um, against Arsenal. The, the one that gets forgotten a lot is... Um, Turin, he was immense in Turin. It was probably, it might have even been his second best ever game for us. Well, at least behind Keane, but in terms of how Keane obviously had this great influence on it, but Beckham was so good. It was one of his best ever games for us as well. Um, and yeah, obviously the, the Arsenal, which I always say is like the, the best forgotten goal of all time because it was um, well, certainly for him from open play. And he scored some belters from open play to to be fair as well, but um, certainly that one, you didn't beat Seaman from that range usually, um, unless it was a freak like Naeem did, but Beckham's was, he was just excellent the way that he hit it. Um, yeah, it's uh, certainly in 99, I think he, he was voted second in the, the Ballon d'Or, was it second or third in the Ballon d'Or, and he deserved that placing because he was that good, and I don't think that was an overstatement. Um, his crossing ability. I mean, the best way that I put it, in terms of if anyone from a modern, and it, it's crazy to say that there's going to be people listening to this who didn't watch Beckham at his peak. So it makes me feel really old. But when I think about it, the best way to describe it is that Kevin De Bruyne is basically like what David Beckham was. And De Bruyne is seen as the best player in the league. So that should give some kind of perspective to how good Beckham was. And I don't think that I'm overstating how good Beckham was with that. I think that's probably, I think everything that De Bruyne does, uh, Beckham could do. Um, perhaps Be um, De Bruyne has got a better engine, but I, I still think that maybe not because we never saw Beckham playing the same role that De Bruyne did. And he, he would have influenced the game the same way, I'm sure. Um, he, he was that good. He really was that good. I want to ask you about your future releases, The Sunshine Kids, the autobiography of Fabio and Raphael. I can't wait for that. What can you tell us about that? When can we expect this to land? Um, it's going to be next year sometime. I'm not sure. We're just firming up the date for that um, because obviously I've got a book on George Best coming out and I don't want to, we don't want to conflict that. But um, so we don't want it to compete with each other, do you know what I mean, at the same time. And, and to be fair, their, their story is incredible. Um, the thing that I'm telling everyone who, who wants to know about it is that if you love them before and every United play, uh, fan did, um, they will do after this even more. It will cement their place in the affection. Um, it, it's just a great story in terms of um, their, their personalities are obviously what they're known for, really, in terms of how vibrant they were. But the 
the intelligence and the depth of what they thought about is really great. Um, Rafa's personality is so vibrant anyway that I, th I think what you see is what you get from him. What's really fascinating, um, the, the, it's fascinating talking to Rafa because the way that he talks about things is so blunt, really, in a way that Fabio doesn't, but Fabio's more considered, more thoughtful with the really reflective of what they were as players um, and what they are as players. Um, Fabio's so fascinating in terms of like the human aspects of, of playing for Manchester United and the anxiety that you or I might feel when we were you know, playing for the club, if, if we ever got that chance to do so. Um, and, and the sort of technical aspects of it. I did an interview with him for, for Red News and everyone was going on about how great um, he was talking about what happened against Barcelona. Um, and I can just say that's what he's like all the time. He's that good um, at, at talking the game, he's really thoughtful. Um, and just, they're, they're both really great guys. They obviously love each other so much. They, they always said that they're two sides of the same person or we are the same person. And they really are, do you know? Um, they just really they love the family. They just when they got united, everything everything that you say about them, um, everything you know about them to be fair over the last sort of ten fifteen years of people, well maybe ten twelve years of people knowing them playing for United, is true but amplified. Do you know what I mean? They did just everything. The way like like I said earlier, you know, the way that you feel about them, the, the affection that you hold for them is only going to be cemented by what you read about how much they love the club and, and the stories that they've got about the club. Obviously, there's some funny ones in there as well. Um, but just what comes through is how much they love playing for Manchester United. And, you know, I'm one of those, because I'm an older, I say older fan, I'm nearly 40, but I've got, my teams are younger than the team that they played in. My team's like the 94 team. That's, that's the one that I really love. Um, and I... As I've got older, I've become more disillusioned with the game, as everyone seems to do when they become older, because you, you're more in love with the youth than what you are the present. And um, I will say that they've given me a new appreciation for that team and a new love for that team, um, just because of the way that they tell the story, basically. And it's just been a, an amazing experience because they were two of my favourite players. And so it's just great to to know them, really, and, and to um, tell their stories in honour. So, yeah. You mentioned the 94 team there. Something I don't really like doing is comparing United teams. I think it's different players, different eras. But often you hear the question, who is the greatest United team? They say 99, the 08 team, mm. the 68 team. I think the 94 team often gets overlooked. That is right up there. That was a fantastic team. Yeah, that had everything um, in it. And it does get overlooked. It really does. You've got, I think... If you're looking at it logically and you want to want to be like cutthroat about it, then the '99 team did something that no one else has ever done. So they've earned that right to be described as the greatest because they've done something that no one else has done. 2008 and 2009, we were minutes really. We were games of football, individual games of football away from eclipsing that. You know, the Portsmouth in 2008, um, the League Cup. In 2000, sorry, not the League Cup, FA Cup semi final in 2009, and um, obviously Rome in 2009 as well. But we were so many individual moments and individual games away from eclipsing that. So you have to put that into perspective. But they didn't do it, they didn't do it. So 99 again stands in front of that. And again, you've got the ifs and buts for 94, which is the European um, foreigner rule and how that 
um, impacted United. It's just, I, you have to be romantic when you're someone like me and look at it and say that because that's my team, I, I'm going to say, oh yeah, they would have won the European Cup and if Cantona hadn't have been suspended, if he hadn't have been sent off in, in that season and he'd been available the following season, then, well, it's all ifs and buts, but again, we were probably the best team in Europe for, for two years. I will say that, even though Barcelona were brilliant and they sort of proved that theory wrong by battering us in the new camp. But I still felt that a full complement, we were good enough to, to, to take them on. Yeah, they're, they're my team. They had everything. They had. Um, it's like today when people talk about Maguire, when we signed Maguire, people were like saying, oh, he's not going to be... Um, He's not going to be a Vidic, but he might be a Bruce. And I'm like, Bruce, was that, you know, he's going to have to go some to get to Bruce. Like, And they're making it sound like uh, it's easy to be a Steve Bruce. Steve Bruce was like a bedrock of our defence. He was one of the best ever defenders we ever had. And I am slightly biased again because I do the podcast with Paul Parker every week. And he always reminds me, because, because I'm talking to him every week, he reminds me of how good that team were, you know. Um, and I posted something the other day about, um, you know, everyone sort of discovered this Paul Scholes goal from 95 against Chelsea. So I posted the 94 team, which was a, all the players were involved in this passing move against Sheffield United. Um, and you got Paul Parker in there, Paul Ince, Roy Keane. These are midfielders who didn't have to be pigeonholed into a certain position. They just, they did everything. And then you got obviously Giggs and Kanchelskis, flying wingers, Mark Hughes, a better striker than people remember doing the one-twos and, and scoring. They really could do everything. They were they were a great footballing team, but they wouldn't be bullied off the pitch either. Um, just I could talk. We could do seven podcasts talking about them. They were so good. Yeah, and I've made no apology for doing it either. <laughs> you know? I want to move on to the weekend's game. United left it late, but it was a good response, I suppose, especially considering they went behind early on. What do you think we learned from that game, if anything? I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Jimmy, because you're always asking the questions, but, but you never, you should you should do what Rob Smith told me to do, put more of yourself in it. But they, um, it's interesting because I, I felt the team selection was, I, I, I think we're at the point with Ole where not that every win, not every game is pivotal, but if we did lost Everly against Newcastle, I couldn't see a way that he was going to carry on. I think we're at that stage. Um, so a win is like a stay of execution. And then, you know, if we get two bad results against Paris and Chelsea, then we're going to be asking the same questions this time next week. We're going to be saying, oh, is he going to get sacked? Um, and the answer might well be yeah. But what we learned, I felt, from Saturday was that he picked four, his first four players that he signed, he picked them all. So that included Dan James, even though he's, he's had the criticism. He picked McTominay and Fred. I know Pogba had a bit of a niggle, but he still was bold enough. I mean, another manager might have not been brave enough to put Pogba on the bench. Um, so he was brave enough to sort of say, I'm going to make... And he was also brave enough to say, I'm not picking Eric Bailly. And he put him in against Spurs and he took him straight back out. That's a massive call from a manager to make. So he'd made all these big calls and he would have faced the criticism for them and rightly so if we'd had lost. So, he, and afterwards, he gave all the praise to the team for the character for which they showed in coming back after that early setback. Because that could have been, we've seen United collapse under freaks like that before. But they did show character to come back. And, and Solskjaer showed character and he deserves praise for his selection. In terms of how, how that translates going forward, I don't really know because I don't think it's sustainable to do that. I think it's a really good answer to critics to do it on a one-off game and it 
Newcastle weren't very good, so it, it sort of um, had a, a little bit of help with that. So how, how does that happen against Paris? How does it happen against Chelsea? It's not going to happen with those same players. We know that for sure. Um, but I do think it does show a good sign of character for Ollie that he did that. Um, I just... I'm worried about... I'm not so... I do share the same concerns in, in that he's either the right man for the job and everything like that, but I do feel like he's been sort of, his hands are tied behind his back sometimes with the way that the club's been run. And that's the thing that concerns me really is that we're still stuck with those players. They're still the same players who could do what they did against Newcastle and surprise you positively, or they could do what they did against Spurs. And you don't know what you're going to get from one week to the next. And I still think that that's true, no matter who the manager is. Ultimately, the manager's the one who pays the price for it. Um, so. I think we are always learning more positive things about Ollie the more that he, the longer that he goes in the job, and that was another positive thing that we learned. But then, you know, then you see what we did against Spurs, and I, I still don't put that one necessarily on Ollie, but I do sometimes share that idea, uh, the opinion of some people saying that he's tactically naive sometimes against some teams because he just, I think he does what any good Man United manager wants to do and sort of says we'll line up at home and we'll just trust in these players to do the job because they've got the they should have the ability to do so. But I don't think this squad of Man United players is good enough for that. I think he should... We've seen him do good tactical um, displays against Spurs, for example, against Chelsea, against Arsenal, against City. He's really shown a good tactical approach with those games. And I think, without wanting to sound like I'm being too negative about this United team, I really think that he should treat every game like that because I don't think we can afford... We don't have the quality to afford to to not do it really, and I think the sooner that Ollie realizes that, the better he will look as a manager. If if you understand what I'm trying to say with that, I think one positive for me from the weekend's game is that Solskjaer was able to change the flow of the game from the bench with his substitutes. Something we probably haven't been able to do in recent years. I think that's a positive in terms of our squad depth. I still feel we're at that point where. The question has to be asked, can another manager get more out of this team than Solskjaer is currently doing? Okay, I know we won at the weekend, but like you said, it's okay to do that in one-off game. But I think now we're at the point where Woodward, these Pochettino links aren't premature paper talk. I think United are genuinely flirting with the possibility of sacking Solskjaer. I think the next couple of weeks are going to be crucial in terms of Solskjaer's tenure and I think he's on borrowed time I can't see him and I hate saying it I couldn't see Solskjaer lasting into the new year No I think, I think you're fair to say that and that's the thing that I said after after the Spurs game I, I felt that that's inevitable now I, I do feel that that change is going to happen I don't want it to because I, only because I, and I said the same with Mourinho and I said the same under Van Gaal I'm always going to support the manager it's not a case of oh you're just backing Ollie because he's a company stooge or anything like that. It's because I genuinely want the manager in charge to, to turn it around and I want him to do good. But I look at the history of it, the way that everything's gone. I look at the realistic... The, the thing that I've been saying, Jimmy, is that when people talk about Pogba, they talk about Martial and they say, oh, they're going to come good under a different manager. I just say, well, look at the last three years. They've been... You can't you can't expect the a massive improvement that's unrealistic over the next three years. So you pretty much expect what you've seen for the last three. And is that gonna gonna be good enough? And I don't think it is. So I don't think whoever the manager is, 
is going to change that. And even if it's Pochettino, who did good jo- a good job at Spurs and did improve a lot of players, I don't think that he's going to improve them, this group of players, to be better than what they were last season, which was third in the Premier League. I don't think that he can bridge that gap with this group of players. I think it's impossible for him to do that. But that's pointless. That's for the next manager. That's that's for Pochettino for whenever he comes in. But it, the question you're basically asking is, when is the change going to happen and, and not if anymore? We we both I think we both feel like it's inevitable. But my my feeling is, as soon as they didn't really back Ollie in the transfer window, and I'm not I'm not having that they did. I'm not having that that was backing him what they did in the last couple of days. I think it was horrendous what happened. Didn't it just undermined the entire message that we've heard from the club for 18 months about forward planning. It undermined everything. So because we're stuck in that routine and because he didn't give Solskjaer a centre-half or two, which I think we've, we definitely needed, definitely needed one, possibly two, um, because he didn't do that, we are doomed to seeing the same cycle of results that we've seen. So, like I said earlier, we're going to see maybe not six ones against Spurs, but we're going to see heavy defeats with embarrassing defending. It, we've seen it too often to know, well, to be fooled into thinking that it's not going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Now, the only question is then, when does that become enough for Ollie? But it won't become enough for Ollie with this week. So, if we get beat heavily against Paris and Chelsea, he's not going to sack Ollie in October. He's probably not going to sack him in November when he sees that horrendous run. You remember back with Mourinho and it looked obvious that he was going to go. We're still shocked that it happened, but it was obvious that it was going to go. And if you looked at the fixture list then, there was Liverpool. Obviously, we were going to get spanked by Liverpool and it was a convenient time to get rid of him because then we had a, a nice run of fixtures after that. I feel that this is an horrendous run of fixtures for Ollie. It's enough rope for him to be hung and to make it look like it's all his fault, um, which I think is shameful. But I think that's the way that we we, we were shameful in the way that we cite Van Gaal on the cup final day. We were shameful in the way that we handled everything with Mourinho because we shouldn't have given him a, a new contract, then not back him, then sack him in the way. I'm not saying that Mourinho should have stayed. He was definitely five months too long in the job. But if you're going to give him a new contract, back him or, or don't don't give him the contract. And I think that we're in that situation with Oli now. And it is basically a case of if things do go badly and if we don't see a freak turnaround in results, if we if things go as we expect that they're going to do, which is inconsistent results and some bad hammerings, then I think December is going to be when he pulls the plug um, because then you're going to have January, um, which maybe they back Pochettino with a sign-in, but it's a convenient excuse to not do that, like we saw with Ole the first, so he will don't make any rash changes for the first few weeks, let's see how the players get on, you know, another few months without make, spending any money, and I think we're just stuck in that cycle, really, and so that I'm going to stick my neck out and say the end of the season, because I think they'll keep probably like April or something like that, but I think because of the, the fixture, the, the, the way that the fixture list lies at the moment, I wouldn't be surprised to see, see him gone by December, um, which, like I've already said, I, I don't want to see because I think that, like I said, I don't think that, I'm not convinced he's the right man for the job, but I don't think he's responsible for the, the mess that we're in. I think he's actually responsible for a lot of the positive things that are at the club at the moment. But um, ultimately, you know, it, it's never the men at the top. It's really the players that get the bullets. 
it's always the manager. Um, it, you know, you look at the over the the transition that he's overseen. You know, the number of players that he's he's let go. We were talking about it the other day with um, on the podcast with Paul Parker. It couldn't have been. You look at the transfer strategy and just forget everything else apart from the strikers. You let Lukaku and Sanchez go, and you got a load of dogs abuse for that. His long-term philosophy wasn't to get Igalo in on a loan and then Cavani in at the, the last day of the transfer window. That wasn't his long-term plan. It was, you can speculate over the names, but let's say it's Haaland or, or any other player. It wasn't what it was. It wasn't what's, what we've seen, basically. And um, and that in itself is the, the biggest concern for me. That, and that, to me, says, well, don't give Ollie the, the complete blame. You can blame him for some stuff, sure. He's, you know, he's not... Um, He's not immune from criticism, but let's be realistic about where the blame lies and understand that even if we do sack Ole, even if we see temporary improvement under Pochettino, um, I still feel that the best that this group of players can get is is the third place that we saw last season. It really feels like a repetitive cycle. Yeah. And we're going around and around about us every year for the last seven years. This summer reminds me of when Woodward pulled out on Mourinho on Maguire. Yeah. Who at that football club was more qualified to tell Jose Mourinho that the centre backs he had are better than the ones he wanted? Yeah. Oh, oh the, and the other argument, it was that exact same summer was um, William and Martial, wasn't it? Woodward curried favour with the press saying, oh, well, look, I got rid of uh, Wood, uh, I got rid of Mourinho because I wanted to keep Martial and everybody loves Martial. I'm not saying Martial's not better than William. I'd probably rather have him in my team, but I wouldn't choose that as my hill to die on William and Martial. You know, it's not there's not a massive difference between them. And you know, I could see see the argument for William at the time. I thought it was a sensible transfer to make if you want to bring in William because he's a little bit more consistent than Martial. Not he couldn't be as brilliant as Martial, but he's probably more consistent overall. It seemed like a weird. It wasn't like selling Brian Robson or anything like that. It was, you know what I mean? He's, he's a popular player in the dressing room and he's one of these players that um, we, you've seen them. They're all over Twitter, Martial FC, and the players who've got this inflated sort of sense of what they bring to the team. And uh, don't get me wrong, I like Martial. I, I've already said I think he's got something that a lot of our players don't have, but he's not good enough to stake your entire reputation on it. And I think we've got too many of those players at the moment and certainly not enough to... I wouldn't have ever done that with a manager because you're giving a, a very bad message. And I still feel like we're paying, like you said, we're stuck in that cycle, but we're only stuck in that cycle because of the, the man making that deci- decision at the top is, is Woodward. And he thinks that he can intervene whenever the mood strikes. And I, I, that's so dangerous. That's the, the biggest and bigger. That I, oh, I don't know if I should stick my neck out with that. I don't know if I should say that it's bigger than the Glazers but it's as big as the Glazers from a footballing standpoint because it, re- it basically stops every cycle of progression. Every time you think that the cycle's going to change because there's something to build upon, he he feels the need to intervene and cause it all to break down. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is one of those things. You don't want to be negative. You don't want to be pessimistic about it. But what can you see when you've just seen the the cycle repeat itself three or four times? Since I mean... Van Gaal did well. And I mean, Van Gaal got backed, but that transfer, uh, went, well, all basically all the transfers under Van Gaal were pretty crap. But 
Um, you've certainly seen it. Mourinho gets second higher than what we expected. He doesn't get backed in the way that he should have been backed. Um, and then obviously we've seen it with Ollie as well. Um, I just can't. I can't believe what we saw this summer. Honestly, I'm still trying to get my head around it. I said on the. Like, I know I keep referring to the podcast, but I don't want to repeat myself too much or sound like I am. But um, the 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 last two days of the transfer window disappointed me more than the six-one loss to Spurs because a one-off defeat, as difficult as it is. You, you can suck it up and move on because that's football that is the future of the football club that's at stake and you've missed a massive opportunity. Even now, look, this last two weeks, uh, well, this last week and the weekend, we saw Van Dijk's out with an injury for the rest of the season. So that's going to play a massive part on Liverpool who can't strengthen until January. It's going to really... Influ- We've seen what influence uh, not having the goalkeeper has on them. It has a big influence on them. Um, so that's going to be a big handicap City don't look great. I'm not saying the league's winnable. We're definitely not winnable with this United team. But if we'd have had the three or four players that we should have got, like if we'd had another right winger, a proper right winger, and a centre off, I'd be thinking maybe we could upset a few people here. Do you know what I mean? I would have thought that maybe we could even break into that top two, not through um, us being brilliant, but through the way that the league looks a bit um, misshapen at the moment and to take advantage of that. But United never do, do they? They never do, and that's the, that's where we are. Is really is understanding that and appreciating that it doesn't matter who the manager is. Again, it comes to those on top, and um, yeah, <laughs> try not to be negative, but we are. <laughs> can't help it, can we? Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. I think deadline day summed up where United are as a football club at the moment. Yeah, no leadership on the field. There's no leadership in the boardroom. In no other line of business would such consistent failure be tolerated. I mean, you look at Ed Woodward, whose job is essentially to oversee the development of a Premier League winning team. He has overseen, I think, roughly 840 million. I don't know the exact figure you might. We'll have to show for it. We're not much nearer than we were seven years ago. We could have spent nothing. I think we could have spent nothing. I'm not saying that we... We wouldn't be worse off. We might be flirting with relegation, but where we stand as a football club, we would have been much better off not spending the majority of that 840 million. Look at the, where we spent. I, I reckon between us, we could easily come up with a list where we would save 500 million pounds of that money. We shouldn't have spent. Easily, we could do that. Um, especially when you look at the centre backs. I mean, you still, yeah, maybe Phil Jones and Chris Smalling aren't. Um, on the future of the club. Well, Small is not there anymore, but they were there this summer. Do you know what I mean? And you could have, some people would have argued that they should be starting. I'm not saying that they were right or wrong, but some people would argue that Smalling and Jones should still be starting at United. And that tells you everything. It's not conclusive and they were there before. Do you know what I mean? And, and you could make those arguments. Obviously, De Gea as well is one of them. Um, yeah, so much has been wasted. And like you said, at least half a, half a billion pounds they could not have spent and we wouldn't have noticed a difference. Just staggering. It is. And and Woodward can't sack himself and he wouldn't sack himself and nor would the Glazers because they have such a good relationship with him. So then it's the sort of um, farcical uh, window dressing changes, isn't it? Matt Judge might pay the price for Woodward's ineptitude and, and obviously Solskjaer will. Um, just... Yeah, it's it's incredible, incredible to see. When you see that in 2016, if we'd had 
I liked Van Gaal for a little while, but if we'd had acted when Mourinho was sacked and it was obvious we were going to sack Van Gaal, if we'd had acted in the winter and signed in a couple of players, that league was winnable. This league, not winnable, but certainly you can establish yourself as a top four team um, instead of the way that I've said it is we looked from anywhere from third to eighth last season. That's what I felt we were. Yes, we finished third, but if we'd have finished eighth with the quality of that team, I don't think we would have had much room to grumble. It was that final line. Um, and now we're in the same position when we could be in the top three. Um, and we had the, we had that opportunity and it just shows the ambition of the club really. And um, yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm with you with that. I just can't imagine that in any other, um, not even other business, but any other club in the world, would they accept something? Maybe Arsenal, but that became their, their sort of, um, modus operandi to do that under under the fact that they got a new stadium. Ours, ours isn't a new stadium. It's not even to put fucking paint on the stadium. It's to literally just service the, the, the owners who want to take money out of the club. It's just um, it's horrendous, really, really is. When you think about how deeply it impacts the club and how much it holds us back, it's um, yeah, it's more concerning than just worrying about losing 6-1 against Spurs. So. You touched on David Hay there. He pulled off a pretty good save the weekend down low to Wilson. It was a good save. Do you think that confidence, do you think the save will give him confidence going forward? Because I think David Hay is a confidence player. Or are you, of the, are you of the view that De Gea's best days are behind him? I think for me, I think we're going to see, maybe not this year, we're going to see United phasing De Gea out. I think Henderson is going to come through. I don't think that's a secret. I think that his best years are behind him, but I think that's because of his age. Um, I, I agree with you that he's a he's a confidence player. I do feel a little bit sorry for him in that he's had the he's basically been a little bit like Brian Robson that he's been the best player in a team that is just nowhere near as as good as as he's been for that amount of time. He hasn't, you know, he's been so consistent. Robson similarly elevated us, and at least Robson had the sort of grace of going out in a title winning side it's not going to happen with the hair I don't think I'd like to think that it will but um, I don't think so um, but I still think he's very good I, honestly and I look at him and Henderson and don't get me wrong even on what I've seen from Henderson in the League Cup games I really like him I, I, like, I think his confidence is really good his stature is really good he doesn't look um, and I, I imagine that he'd be the same in a league game as well, that, he, that he'd have that persona. And, and it makes me really confident that when the time comes, he's the man that you give the gloves to. I just, I think De Gea's got something about him that's still there. And you wouldn't want to throw away a player of that talent prematurely. We've done that with Stam. We saw it with Stam. We thought, oh, well, I didn't think it, but a, a man with much greater football opinions than me did. And then Stam came back and he was brilliant um, for for a number of years after that, um, for at least five or six years after that, he was brilliant. So you don't want to do that with De Gea because he could well be brilliant for six or seven years, given the life of a goalkeeper. It, you know, it's not um, unreasonable to think that he could still be brilliant for that period of time. And he's not going to sit on the bench as a number two because he's too good for that. So... When you see what he did against Newcastle, and he wasn't to blame for the goal, and I don't, I don't blame him for anything against Spurs either. Don't blame him for anything this season so far. I mean, perhaps he could have done better against Palace, but 
I wouldn't. We were defensively horrible in that game as well. And obviously, if you have a better defense in front of a goalkeeper, it helps immeasurably. It goes without saying. It, it's just common sense. Um, so that that's the other thing about Henderson is that put him in the League Cup games. That's that's been great. But put him in front of Eric Bay and um, Victor Lindelof against Spurs. Well, Harry Maguire against Spurs, but put him in front of those players playing like that against Spurs, you might see a different goalkeeper. Um, De Gea's save against Newcastle was brilliant, and I think that there's probably no keeper in the league capable of stuff like that. And you know, you've seen him make saves with his legs and stuff, things that you just you don't see from other goalkeepers. I still think what he brings to the team is worth keeping him in, rather than what you'd lose in losing him. That, and I know that Anderson's got that confidence and assurance but De Gea is really good he, De Gea could make a mistake and within the next attack he could make a world class save he doesn't I know he's a confidence player but he's still got the self confidence and the inner belief to pull off something like that uh, whereas another goalkeeper might just go to you know might I was going to swear but it, it might, they might go wrong it might go wrong for them um, so that I, I would keep him in um, but I do think we are at that point again I'm not disagreeing with you. I think we're absolutely at a point where that decision could be made because Henderson's been so impressive. And if he comes in and makes a, a bigger... Certainly if he makes a bigger case for himself than what Romero did, because I know a lot of people are really defensive about Romero and say, oh, he's, he's oh, the best number two that's ever existed and everything like that. Romero makes a lot of errors. He, he comes out a lot. He makes a lot of rash judgments. Um, he, he's a number two for a reason. I don't think he's... Um, He's anywhere near good enough to... Uh, some people were saying he should have come in for De Gea. I don't agree with that at all. I think Henderson's better than Romero. And I think that there's a potential for him to walk in. But again, it's when you make that choice because it's not just about how good Henderson is. This isn't... A goalkeeper's a very different position, isn't it? You can't do it in, in the same way that you do any other position on the team because it's such a critical thing to get right. I think... Um, I think Ollie's doing it the right way. Um, I trust him to, if he's the one in charge making that decision, I trust him to get it right because he's seen the, the players. He knows what De Gea is capable of. He knows the risk in dropping someone like that. He's also getting advice from Fergie, isn't he? Fergie's in his ear all the time, so he's not going to be making decisions. As, uh, Fergie knew a thing or two about dropping goalkeepers as well. So he's going to know when the time is right to do that, and I don't think the time's right. He's not shot. De Gea's definitely not shot. We saw against Newcastle that He's, he's capable of the brilliant. And we've seen that many times last season as well. He's still capable of the brilliant. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I'm more of the mind to say the defence is a concern. Do you know what I mean? And if, if he was doing that in front of a good defence, I'd be more concerned. So, um, and, and because I've, I like De Gea, I've got a particular sort of um, favourable um, opinion towards him. So I wouldn't want to see him dropped just yet because especially you've got to be loyal to some players and we talked about Martial earlier and players who've shown the right to deserve a place in the side and yeah I've waffled on a bit there but I want to, I just want to say that I love De Gea and I'm, I'm happy for him to be in the team but absolutely I can see um, certainly Anderson getting not just a cup games he could get a few league games as well and he probably deserved them because he's um, uh, I'd, I'd want to see what he's capable of in the league as well I'd be interested to see that You mentioned Harry Maguire there Another man who could argue answer his critics the weekend, the performance, the goal, it would probably keep the the wolves from the door for a little while. 
I would expect. But I don't look at Harry Maguire and think United captain. I want to get your view on his, I suppose, perceived lack of authority. And what I'm referring to is the penalty against Spurs when United gave away the penalty. And you had all the players protesting and Maguire was kind of on the peripheral of that. And if you think of other United captains, think of Keane, you think of Neville, whether it's right or wrong, they would have been there in the ref's face. They would have been protesting. What's your view on that? Was it the penalty? I'm sure he probably did it for the penalty, but it was the sending off as well, Martial, wasn't it? Where he, he sort of... I yeah. think the, the sending off one, apparently he was told that the referee wasn't going to check VAR, so he, he sort of backed off from that. So I understand why he didn't do that. I know what you're saying in, to, in terms of the um, physical presentation of leadership. I don't think that he personifies that. And it is very difficult. In terms of this current squad and the composition of it, so let me just digress a little bit to talk about David Moyes, to go way off the subject, to come right back onto it like I'm I'm prone to do. When David Moyes was at United, I always said that he made a series of understandable mistakes, that things that any manager would do that obviously were a mistake when you look back at them. But he brought in his own staff, you know, he made, he brought in a couple of his own players. These are things that managers do at new clubs, but they all went wrong for him. I'm not saying that that's the case with Ali with Ari Maguire, but Ari Maguire was the captain of an expensive. Oh, he was an expensive defensive signing. The captain of the club had moved on. There was a void there for that person to be named. You probably can understand that he's going to name his most expensive player. Who's beat? I mean, Fernandez had just come in but you're not going to give him the captaincy straight away when, you first of all, you, we didn't even know if he was going to be good or not. So I can understand why he did that. And also, Maguire was struggling for form at the time, and I think that the hope was that you give him the captaincy and you'll see him improve. Now, I don't think that that's happened. Um, unfortunately, I think that the longer he's been in that defence, the more uncertain he's become. Um, and I think that maybe... I still want to think that he's a victim of the players around him. I don't think because Luke Shaw hasn't been great and Lindelof hasn't been great. I know you're a young lad, Jimmy, but I'm sure you can, there were some times in Rio Ferdinand's earlier United career where the players around him weren't so good and they were saying, oh, Rio's crap, he's no good. And so you put him alongside Vidic and suddenly you see the best centre-half that United have ever seen. I'm not saying that you're going to get that from Aaron Maguire. I'm just trying to put it into context of Maguire could improve if there's better, if there's a, another player alongside him. Now, the other player alongside him is going to have to be a player like Ferdinand, and that player is going to probably have to be the captain as well because I don't think that you see that. I don't think that Maguire's that... Um, he's that personality that you're talking about. I think you're absolutely right, um, but I, I'm not one of those to say should be dropped just yet. Be, and I say that primarily on the basis that I think he hasn't been given enough time and the others have been given enough time. Do you know what I mean? So he's still rel- relatively short in his career and we've seen enough good from him. I did like the response from him on Saturday. I thought he was very good on Saturday. One of his best, certainly his best game this calendar year, I thought, particularly in um, the fact that he's responded to a lot of things that was going on. So he did very well in that response. Um, I don't think you can take the captaincy off him either because it sends a wrong message to do that. A lot of people think you should just do that. But imagine if Ole did that. Reasonably speaking, if he decided his captain is no longer his captain and he's going to 
he's Fernandez has got the, the armband tonight. Imagine if Fernandez was armband, uh, given the armband moving forward. I still think it undermines Oli as much as it does Maguire because it makes him look flippant with his with his um, decisions with that. So those people who think that he should be doing this and that consider the long term repercussions of these decisions and um, you've got to consider that a lot of people want these short term things because they think it's going to have a temporary boost but you want a manager making the long term decision even if you don't agree with it there, there are going to be loads of times in the past where people disagreed with the captain that we had but we we were winning stuff do you know what I mean Gary Neville was club captain when he was out injured for most of the time but he didn't take the armband off him you know what I mean you just move you move with what um what you've got um and he you know whether or not he's made the right decision with Maguire at least he's sticking with it he's showing conviction of his opinion he played him when a lot of people would have dropped him again he showed courage to play him a bit of boldness to say these are my players these are the ones I thought there was a little bit of a backhanded sort of comment about the transfer market with that as well to sort of say no these are the four players I bought and these are the four players that are going to win the game for us so I do like that side of Ollie and I do want to see that succeed and I do want to see Aaron Maguire succeed. I don't, again, personally agree that he's probably the right, I don't think he's the right man to be the captain of the club. I think you want someone more vocal. But hopefully that player will come in at some point. I, I say hopefully, I'm looking at this like yeah. Rosie Beecher where Solskjaer's the manager and he chooses the players who come in. Do you know what I mean? It's like that Ollie's going to be the man who brings in the partner. I don't think that's realistic. But hopefully in that scenario, yeah, you, you bring in a player who, I don't know, a Roy Keane defender to... A Roy Keane personality defender, but a real Ferdinand type of defender. Do you know what I mean? The personality to shout, but the the, the tackling mentality or the defensive quality and uh, composure of a, of a Ferdinand. Um, I don't know where you find that player, but um, it's got to be better than what we've got. Um, yeah. Um, in, what's the? I don't know. How you say it, the the Reddit version TLDR kind of thing. Um, Maguire, yes. I agree with you, shouldn't be captain, but yes, I understand why he is under Ollie and I wouldn't change him. I know it's, it's complex, but that's the way that it is at United at the moment. You know what I mean? It's There's not an easy answer for, answer for something like that. I want to wrap up by talking about tonight's game because I'm conscious that I've kept you for long enough now. We're quite short defensively tonight. We're missing Maguire, Eric Bailly, of course, Jones, Marcus Rojo, not included in the eligible players. Do you think we could expect to see a back three tonight with maybe Luke Shaw on the left of a back three with Twanzebi and two wing-backs maybe for a bit of extra security? Yeah, I would think so. It's a tough one, that, isn't it? Because um, don't uh, get inspired by anything that you anticipate happening with that, um, with the weather we put there. But you think safety in numbers. And I've always said safety in numbers with this collection of Manchester United defenders is not necessarily the case. It, it can also often have danger in numbers. The more defenders you've got, the more chance you've got of one of them making an error. Um, I don't want to put Swansea in that um, category. Or Luke Shaw at centre-back, because I think that what you're saying about a back three with Shaw in there, that's been part of one of well, some of our best performances. And that, again, is down to Ollie's tactical interventions. So that's another thing to be positive about the manager. So I look at that, what you're saying, and I think that's the way that I would feel most optimistic about it considering the, the quality of the players that we've got. But I look at the quality of the players that we've got. And, I, you know, this team that we're playing against aren't mugs. They, they got to Champions League final last season. Mbappe is one of the best players in the world. So is Neymar. Look, 
that we're going to have a tough time. I don't expect anyone thinking, oh, we're going to go back and do what we did in Paris last year. It's not going to happen. Get ready for a dose of realism about where United are, considering the summer that we've had. I mean, it's not going to be a comfortable watch. I don't think, even if we win, it's not going to be comfortable to watch because you're going to be expecting it all to go horribly wrong. Um, and I, I say that again, not wanting to be, you know, especially not ahead of a United game, thinking negatively about it. But let's be realistic about what to expect because if we're realistic, then afterwards, we're not going to be having all this, like, all these people coming out and slagging off Ollie, which you are going to do. Inevitably, that's going to be the case. I'm just saying in a perfect world, if we were all realistic about what to expect, that wouldn't be the case because you're going to look at that and think, this this is our first game in the Champions League for a couple of years. It's against the team who finished um, in the final and this is a very weak United team considering. Um, very weak. Um, you should expect to see United get beaten comfortably. You're hoping, based on what you're, that, that kind of tactical intervention that you're talking about, that we can upset it. But please, anyone listening to this United fan, understand it is an upset that we're talking about. We're not talking about um, United going there expecting to win. You're looking at a tactical shift set up to upset the apple cart. Um, we could do it. We've done it before. We did it with probably just as weak a squad when we went there last time. It, weren't, it wasn't a very good team, was it, that we fielded last time? We expected to get beaten heavily. So we could do it. And, and like I said, ahead of any United game, I'm going to be open for us to win against the improbable. I always do that. Um, but I'm not going to be criticising Oli too heavily. I mean, it, it could be one of those, we talked about the death knell, it could be one of those performances that rubber stamp it, but I'm not going to be saying, oh, it's because of Oli that we that we um, get beaten heavily. It could be, on the other hand, it could be because of Oli that we do well. So let's just see how, how we do that. I'm not one of these who, um, I know you said short centre-back, centre-back. I don't think that in a four that's going to work and some people said that and also Aaron Wambasaka in a four. I talked to Richard Shaw who was his youth coach at um, Palace and he he sort of relented on maybe the right side of a five uh, on the right side of a three and a five. He sort of said yeah maybe but not in a in a four. A lot of people said he could make a good centre-back because he's so, so good defensively but he said about um about his positional awareness and the fact that he needs a shower next to him. And obviously that's we've just been talking about. We don't have that kind of play in our back line. So you're just going to be putting move taking a good player out and creating a bigger problem elsewhere. Um, and making Wambazaka look bad if you do that. In a five, maybe, but I, I still feel a bit funny about the idea of playing four full backs in a back five. Do you know what I mean? I, I think the balance and then and then Twanzebi is the responsibility of the central it, it, don't get me wrong, I think stranger things have happened. That could be the perfect recipe, but I look at it and think, oh my God, that's a recipe for disaster. And it doesn't do any of the players any favours. People again saying Scott McTominay basically played there for Scotland. He did against West Ham, you know, last year when, um, last year, two years ago, when um, Jose threw him under the bus with that. I think he did anyway, it's my opinion. Um, he put him under, you know, put him under a lot of pressure and, and McTominay looked very bad. I don't think he's a good centre-half but he's a good centre midfielder. Um, it's interesting. I, I'm as intrigued. I wish you were in Ollie's ear telling him that because I hope that that's what he does with the, the team. Um, you don't want to see United defending, um, set out to defend, but I think you've got to be responsible with that defence that we've got available. And doing that is probably the most proactive thing that we could do. Um, 
you know, yeah, let's hope for a repeat of what we saw in Paris last year. Um, I'm, I'm going with it now. I'll just be hopeful about it. But um, yeah, just anyone who does listen to this, and please don't slag off Ollie if, um, if it goes wrong. Look at the team, please. <laughs> I think our last visit to Paris does give us reason to be optimistic, but I'm not sure. I'm with you. I'm not sure Lightning will strike twice. Wayne, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time. You too, mate. You too. Thank you. Calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole.